Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have an interview with Eric Nussbaum. The former sports editor at Vice, Nussbaum is now the editor-in-chief of Seattle Met, and he is the author of Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between, which is the subject of today's podcast. Please enjoy our conversation. This book sits within a few genres, and I want to begin by talking about sports writing first. We within that world, we have like a lot of hagiography, you know, kind of you know, telling stories, you know, heroic tales of athletes. We have a lot of analytical writing. I really enjoy a lot of the writing that kind of gets into the nitty gritty of looking at analytics. We have some more uh, traditional sports journalism, but we don't have a lot of books like yours that are more historical in nature and take serious looks at the history and the events that led uh, to stadiums and teams and those kinds of things. Who are some of your favorite sports writers today? What is your sense of the industry and where it is headed? And where do you fit your book in that universe? Jeez. Okay. Well, I would say that I grew up reading all that stuff and I'm sure I was pretty heavily influenced by all of it as I was putting putting Stealing Home together. You know, on the back cover, there's a blurb from David Moranis and he's an example of somebody who I would say is a sports writer who does some of that work that goes a little bit deeper. I mean, mostly biographies, but writes about the world in a critical way and a curious way and is not necessarily just accepting the sort of standard hagiography account of somebody's life. Although there's a place for that, I suppose, too. In terms of the analytical writing, you know, I love baseball perspectives and fan graphs from a baseball fan perspective. I think that stuff's fascinating. I was reading this morning on MLB.com, I think, an article about base runners running past bases on purpose on second and third base to allow runs to score with two outs. It's this whole new kind of trick in base running that fascinated me. That kind of stuff I love. But I don't know if I even place my book in conversation with it. When you read your book, it feels more like a narrative history to me than more sports writing. But when I was initially looking at it, I kind of placed it within that genre, in part because, you know, Los Angeles and the Dodgers are kind of in the subtitle there. And so was there kind of genre confusion for some people when they approached the book? I mean, because in some ways we get to Dodgers are interlaced throughout the book, and we'll talk about the outline in a second. But it's really a book about a family, municipal politics, an idealistic housing authority person, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of just traditional history in here. So when you pitched the book, how did that kind of, how did you articulate that? When I pitched the book, it was very much sort of like a social history behind Dodger Stadium and behind, you know, the events that you read about in the book. In the practice of writing it, I think baseball was even less of a part of it than I anticipated. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, how a book gets published is not an individual decision. It's a part of business decision. And I think the marketing of Stealing Home, the cover, the title even, to a certain extent, all have to do with, you know, book publishers needing to place books in certain genres for booksellers to eventually categorize them. And it was made pretty clear to me that publishing this as a baseball book would be the best way to get people to read it and buy it. And I've seen it placed in other parts of bookstores in American history or you know, economic history or Latin American history. And I don't really object to any of those. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's a great way to get people to understand, you know, pull them into a story maybe that they don't anticipate, but then fall in love with as they read it. So I want to talk a little bit about sources here. You have a lot of intimate details about the families who lived in these neighborhoods that we're going to discuss in, in more as we go along. Uh, can you describe the research process for gathering uh, that information, given that it's, you know, kind of interfamily stuff and uh, really intimate details? Sure. So, I mean, my background before I wrote this book was mostly magazine writing. And I spent a lot of time basically doing that kind of reporting and work. It was interviews. It was a lot of long conversations, repeated conversations with people in those families, descendants. A lot of people who I wrote about in that book, I mean, their kids and grandkids and friends even were still alive. So I had plenty of opportunities to hear from them, earn their trust, sit down, go through family photo books and papers and home videos and sort of excavate those memories. And all those details come straight from people who are there. Yeah. I'm assuming most people that are listening are familiar with Los Angeles, but they might not be familiar with kind of the topography and the layout. So before we kind of talk further, because a lot of this book has to deal with kind of the geography of Los Angeles, can you describe where Dodger Stadium fits into that geography in the Chavez Ravine for people who haven't visited that part of the town? Sure. So, I mean, LA, you know, it's a big basin along the Pacific Ocean, surrounded by foothills and mountains. And right about in the middle of it is what you call downtown LA, I guess. And a few miles from downtown are these hills that were once upon a time called the Stone Quarry Hills, as I write about in the book. And there's a big park there called Elysian Park. There's a neighborhood near there named Echo Park. And Dodger Stadium sits in the middle of that sort of series of hills. The place we call Chavez Ravine now is sort of a misnomer, as I, I guess we can get into. But basically, you're talking about a neighborhood that we're kind of an area that's a little bit isolated, but also right in the middle of the city. I guess that's the way to understand it best. Okay. Uh, the other aspect to this book is, and I would also classify this book as kind of a municipal history, history as well, a history of Los Angeles. And the book does a good job of illustrating the challenges of that genre, which is you have overlapping interests, stakeholders, media outlets with vested interests. Uh, can you discuss some of the challenges in unraveling all these different groups and how they interconnected around these issues? Yeah, I think that the uh, structure of the book probably speaks to that a little bit. Yeah. A little bit frantic in some places. But the city was very different, I suppose, than the LA we know now. The time I'm writing about in this book is mainly kind of the 20s through the late 50s. And the LA of that era was still extremely dominated by conservative white Protestant politicians. It's extremely dominated then as it is now by real estate interests and home builders. And at that time, oil companies more maybe so than now. Its politics and its media landscape were volatile. The LA Times that we know now as sort of the institutional boring paper of record was an extreme right-wing propagandist paper uh, in the time I'm writing about. And its role as such had a huge impact on the development of the city and on its politics. Uh, there's, you know, a progressive movement 
there's a communist movement, there's an anti-vice movement that sort of uh, sprung up from LA's, you know, kind of organized crime scene and involves a sort of combination of do-gooder liberals and well-meaning conservatives. There's obviously this huge influx of African-American immigrants after World War II, especially, who came over to, you know, work in military industries, a growing, fast-growing Mexican-American population that's sort of just coming into its own in terms of political representation as well. There's redlining still happening. I mean, it's just like, there's a lot. It's a lot to get your head around. And we even talked about like the birth of Hollywood, which is sort of exploding then too. Yeah. So how did you, taking all of that giant web, how did you think about what to focus on? I tried to focus directly on the stuff that was impacting the events that led to Dodger Stadium. So, right, I tried to kind of work backwards from like, you know, and obviously when you when you write history, uh, this is something I found is that it's hard to know where those events stop, right? It's like, okay, I talk about, you know, the Mexican-American War. Uh, I talk about myths about General Santa Ana and Abner Doubleday and the creation of baseball. And I mean, are those directly related to the construction of Dodger Stadium? It's arguable. Uh, and it's very easy to just keep going and following every thread. But a lot of the challenge of writing history is knowing when when to stop, where to draw the line. So that was hard for me. I, I tried to also keep the book focused on the individual people whose decisions and circumstances impacted things. And a lot of the choices I made were related to where those people were, what they were doing, what were their motivations, and how did their choices move the city forward for better or worse. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's the the next question I was really going to ask you was about structure. Did you outline this book in term when you started the process? Uh, because it kind of has this I, I almost want to say cloud atlas style of interconnections with all these different characters and interests. Was that something that for you was a process? Oh, I apologize. Was that for you a process of outlining at the beginning or kind of working through the details and figuring out where you're going as you're working through them? It was a little bit of both. I had a pretty good sense of where. I wanted the book to start and end and, you know, what the events were in the middle, but figuring out how to structure individual chapters, you know, the book, if you read it, it has a lot of short chapters and it bounces mm -hmm. between characters and storylines. And it has some chapters that introduce a person really just for one chapter, you know, because they provide some useful context. And hopefully each of those chapters is, you know, a good read on its own and has its own story. But the reason I, I think I structured it that way was because of all the stuff we talked about with how complex LA was and how complex these events were. I wanted to maintain narrative momentum, excuse me for speaking so fast there. <laughs> and I also wanted to be able to keep things somewhat clear in a reader's head. And it just felt like that was the best way to do it. I also, I like books like that. I haven't read Cloud Atlas, but I would say I was much more influenced by fiction than nonfiction and the way I thought about structuring the book in terms of storytelling. I had an earlier version of the book that was much more first person and I had kind of was talking about my research process and there's this book called HHHH, it's a novel about, a French novel about the assassination attempt of this Nazi named Heydrich in Germany and he uses these really incredible short chapters. And I think that book was on my mind a little bit. One book I've talked about that influenced the structure of Stealing Home was the USA Trilogy by John Dos Passos. And he 
has these different structured chapters and these kind of biographies of historical figures that he intersperses throughout. Uh, so I was definitely thinking about books that are able to sort of achieve emotional resonance while juggling lots of characters and storylines. Okay. One more, one more kind of general question before we jump into the meat of the book. And I always like to do this, especially kind of in, you know, on the heels of the writer's strike and artists and being recognized for your art. So who did the, who did the, the, and how did you think about doing the, like the sketches, the artwork throughout the book? And why did you make that choice? So the sketches were by my friend, Adam Villison, and he's been like a good, good, one of my best friends and creative partners in a lot of stuff over the years. We did a Substack newsletter for a long time called Sports Stories, where we did sports history. He contributed to Vice when I was an editor there, and so we became friends. And part of it was I was thinking about old books with kind of line drawings, and I, I love the way that makes you feel. I thought a lot about the way the book would make a reader feel almost more than what they would learn from a factual perspective. I think it's a really emotionally powerful story and these events are important to think about that way. Uh, I also, there's a lot of pictures uh, from these events that are easily available. There's been a documentary about it. I didn't think adding them would necessarily provide a huge benefit to readers in the same way that the illustrations would. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump into the meat of the book. Is the mine in Marinci kind of a, a metaphor for what happened in Los Angeles for you? I didn't think of it that way, actually. Maybe a little, little bit symbolically. The mine in Marinci is just a mine, and it's still there, and it's it's very large. Yeah, I think the the changing of the mine and how it you know went from being this tunnel mine to a big open pit, I suppose, does sort of reflect what would happen in L.A. a couple decades later. Yeah, I mean, I, I was when I was reading it, I was thinking, what you know, whether that was kind of an implicit metaphor, just about capitalist interests, you know, excavating and removing something in order to place something that was revenue generating in its place. I wasn't sure if that was uh, a, an intentional nod to what was going to happen in Los Angeles or not. I think it was maybe semi-intentional. I would say that the mine was already that, you know, even before they opened it up, it was a closed mine, but it was still a dangerous, terrible place where people died and were exploited before they, you know blew it up and turned it into a giant hole in the ground. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Frank uh, Wilkinson as a character. I, like many people, just watched the Oppenheimer film. And so red baiting and people's having their careers destroyed by some of these committees that emerged in the beginning of the Cold War is fresh on my mind. Do you view Frank as kind of a tragic character? What's your kind of general picture on, on his narrative arc in the course of the book? I view him as both a sort of perpetrator of misguided stuff, I suppose you could say. He, mm -hmm. He's both a, a perpetrator and a victim in this book. I think he's a tragic character, absolutely. I think his tragedy was probably his hubris, as much as the tragedy of the systems that ruined his life and that he you know, paid pretty dearly for and his family paid very dearly for. But I also... I tend to think that character is destiny a little bit for somebody like Frank and his character was such that I think he would have been mixed up in the ways he was mixed up even in a different time or place. If I had, if I had to guess. Yeah. And he's not sitting on our psychoanalyst chair, but I, as I was reading your book and I was thinking about his role in LA politics and his, 
intention to keep his communist membership and how how he was kind of dancing along these lines that could ruin his life, I was having a hard time understanding what kept him attached. And so you would attribute that to his hubris? Somewhat. Some of the people who knew him used to say he had a martyr complex. Uh, I think in the book, I talk about how his nickname, not in a flattering way, was JC. Okay. So he definitely, I think, wanted that a little bit. He wanted that attention. He wanted that conflict. He wanted to be in the mix. And I would also say that he was very sincere in his beliefs. He truly believed that public housing could change the face of the city for better. He might have had patronizing underlying beliefs that led him to think that public housing was the best choice, but he really believed it. He truly believed that freedom of speech and the Bill of Rights of the First Amendment were worth giving up your life for. And he gave up years of his life for it. I mean, truly. So the sincerity of Frank's views is not something I would question. In fact, that's something I admire. But I would also say that he lacks some self-awareness. Yeah, I can definitely see that. The community of families that you describe in those three neighborhoods kind of exist within their own separate sphere in Los Angeles. And it kind of, speaking of fiction, it reminded me in some ways of the fictional town Macondo in the hundred years of solitude, you know, kind of this isolated community within this larger wild world. Can you describe the communities that were taken away by building of Dodger Stadium and just in terms of their vibrancy, their interconnections and what gave them their identity? Yeah. And I think there was, you know, that's a beautiful comparison. And I, I wouldn't say that like I was thinking about it necessarily, but maybe subconsciously a little bit. I mean, I talk about, I think there's a the quote at the start of the book is from Pedro Paramo. So uh, the magical realism stuff might've been on my mind, but I, those communities, so there was three communities, Palo Verde, La Loma and Bishop who that were in these hills and they were sort of geographically isolated. They were semi-rural in some places and also very developed in others. Between them, it was about a thousand families, a mix of homeowners and renters, a mix of nice houses, you know, with Hollywood actors living there. And, you know, shacks with people who were taking care of their crops and animals. Palo Verde was the most developed and the biggest of the towns or neighborhoods, you could say. You know, it had a church, it had school, it had convent, it had community stores. There was a deep sense of local pride, like extremely deep. Families knew each other, they supported each other, even when they didn't like each other in the way that any small town would. To get a sense of what the houses look like, if you've ever seen To Kill a Mockingbird, the movie, a lot of the houses in To Kill a Mockingbird were actually houses from Palo Verde that were rolled off the neighborhood to the Universal lot later on. It's It was a really vibrant, special place that the people who live there, you know, and part of it is the wistfulness of time and the fact that, you know, they lost their homes in such a dramatic, tragic way, but it's really hard to talk to people who lived in those places and not come away feeling that they were special. Yeah. And was your focus on the Arachigas kind of working back from that incident in in terms, and then you focused on them or was there another reason why you selected to spend so much time with them? It was working back partly. I I had read a lot about this and I had always been curious. There's sort of this, tendency I felt in a lot of the books and the writing that covered 
uh, these incidents to sort of say, and then the Arechiga family got thrown out of their homes. And there wasn't a lot of explanation of who they were or why. I was really interested in this sort of question of like, what was it about them that set them apart? You know, why are they the ones who were getting violently evicted when a thousand other families didn't? Why are they the ones who were on TV? Why are they fighting? Was it personality? Was it circumstance? Was it luck? The images of their eviction, the videos of their eviction are extremely moving and still resonate in LA today. I think those pictures definitely drew me in. And so I started off with just curiosity. Yeah. And I, I, the images of them that uh, your artist friend did in the book are just almost like they would be on a, a votive candle in some ways, just in terms of like highlighting them and, you know, kind of, you know, but you also spend a lot of time talking about how they're complex characters, right? I mean, we spent some time talking about later on in the book, you mentioned that they own properties across Los Angeles. Why was it important for you to include that detail? Well, first of all, it's an important detail in how the events played out. The fact that they own property across Los Angeles was used as sort of like a cudgel against them by their opponents in the city to say that they shouldn't get to keep their land because they're not as poor as we think. There was this notion that, you know, a Mexican family fighting for their land is only honorable if they're doing it out of poverty or out of necessity, not out of principle. And the fact that it was really principle for them was important. It's an important part of the story. And it's it's an example of what we talked about earlier with LA's sort of insane media world in the 1950s and also the sort of biases that drove even quote unquote progressive politicians at the time. And also it's important to highlight their activism and that it wasn't just about holding onto their house, but it was about saying something larger about who gets to you know be a homeowner in this city, whose voices get listened to. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, I think you do a good job of showing the complexity of the characters involved. And I'm forgetting who's the, what's the name of the activist that ultimately worked with forgetting it. There's a lot of characters in your book. So I'm trying to remember all their names. The activists that worked with Frank to go door to door to try and convince people to move out of the neighborhood. Oh, Ignacio. Uh, yeah. Uh, can you yeah. describe how how we should understand a person like I was struggling with him in particular and trying to understand his motives and perspective in this situation? Gosh, he's a complicated man, right? He was a newspaper publisher. He was a pretty like early going Chicano before they even had to work Chicano, but Mexican American activist in Southern California. And he also worked for the Housing Authority in LA. You know, I think a lot of people genuinely believe that integrated, first of all, like we're talking about an era of segregation still in LA, of redlining and public housing to a lot of people, it was just a genuinely good idea. I mean, we could still discuss this, right? Like LA at the time had a huge housing shortage. It had restrictive covenants. It had home builders who were greedy and racist. I think it's fair to say that both of those things. And it had a booming non-white population that needed places to live. And had we built more public housing and public housing, especially in the forties was, was not yet sort of this failure that we think of it as today, or this sort of communist plot as it became uh, in the 1950s or was painted as by its opponents. 
So yeah, I think let me jump in and interrupt you real quick because uh, I do because you're, you're on this point. So I think it's a good point because a lot of people's perspective of public housing is colored by the outcomes, you know, and it's hard to really kind of unravel what you've seen, you know, if you've watched The Wire or something and like your perceptions of what public housing is or what it became. Can you unpack a little bit more and you were going into it just now, but really focus on that because I think that is hard for the modern reader to not to to think at it neutrally in terms of like approaching it before some of those outcomes came to place or came came yeah you following me yeah so i mean put in the 1940s we're coming out of the new deal an era of big government programs we're coming out of world war ii now where there was huge needs for housing for military families and war workers especially in california and you're basically looking at, at a vision of society where home ownership uh, is not the leading sort of signifier of wealth or the leading way you get wealth. Um, so this like this model that we have now really came after the 1940s and 50s. Uh, it was kind of codified then. Frank Wilkinson, Ignacio Lopez, people who believe in public housing saw a different way. And you know, you're starting to see these conversations happen more and more. There's a big New York Times story about social housing in Europe recently that maybe that wasn't the best way. And maybe you can have public housing or social housing that's dignified. I mean, the plans that people like Frank were proposing were, I would say, almost utopian. You know, they envisioned these walkable communities with services and they were all designed by famous architects and they were beautiful and they would have been a great way to live, right? Like a lot of the urbanists, sort of thinking now isn't that far off from what public housing advocates in the 40s were talking about. It was also a way for the government to force integration on on communities that didn't want it. And that was seen as necessary. And if you look at cities across America today, I think you could argue that it might still be. Yeah. The uh, other than public housing, the other kind of big theme here is this uh, concept of eminent domain. And it's something that we use often or use in passing, but maybe don't fully understand what it means. And it also exists kind of along a spectrum. Um, I'm located in the Fresno area and eminent domain was used uh, to basically cut uh, big veins across the city to put freeways in. Um, and there was some neighborhoods, some historical neighborhoods that had beautiful Victorian homes and bungalows that were just demolished so we could create crosstown freeways. And, you know, a lot of us think about Robert Moses and tearing up New York City can you discuss, first of all, just for people that are not as familiar with what it is and how it works, can you describe how eminent domain works? And then secondarily, what are some of the lessons that we should draw about the use of eminent domain in this particular case? Sure. Well, this is like the worst possible outcome of eminent domain. That's what kind of the yeah. story is about, right? So in, in Stealing Home, and I'll explain it kind of using the example from the book, I think, Frank Wilkinson, this public housing official we've talked about, he was leading a an initiative in LA to build 10,000 units of public housing with federal funds that were assigned to the county from the Truman administration. And to do it, they needed to find space to build the housing. So 
Frank and his team from the housing authority would drive around the city and scout locations based on proximity to work or conditions or nearby highways or, you know, planned nearby highways since this was the area era of still building them. And when they decided an area was suitable and right, they would get all the legal permissions and they would use eminent domain. It was a legal action that would evict people from their homes by, you know, offering them quote unquote market value and kind of assign them over to a government authority. And then they'd be used for, you know, a public service, right? Whether that service was a freeway, whether it's a repair stop shop for buses, whether it's a public housing facility. And in this case, it's public housing. And the way it went wrong here is that after a large chunk of these communities that Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop were taken with eminent domain, the events in the, in the city unfolded in a way that made building the public housing project that, that Frank envisioned, it was called Elysian Park Heights, untenable. So the city had used eminent domain to acquire all these people's homes and then found itself unable to build. Yeah. Well, and I think the the letter at the end of the book that you quote at length, uh, where um, I'm, I'm forgetting which character writes the letter, but essentially describing how their land was taken for public housing and then somehow it was transformed into a sports arena uh, or stadium and that how that logic or that calculus doesn't make sense within what the intention of the process was, was for. And so it, it's, it's just, it's so complicated and it's hard, you know, there's a sense in which when you're reading the book, you want to assign blame or find fault. But then I think I, I walked away from the book just seeing how all these stakeholders that we've described before create such complexity that it's, it's kind of hard to unravel and find act, the actual source. We can in some ways, I think, and I think you would argue that, but I think there is an element of complexity here that makes that difficult. I agree. I think it's funny. I was in a room once with this guy who was like a movie executive or something. And he asked me, so who's the bad guy in your book? And I froze up. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. It doesn't really have good guys and bad guys. The system, you know, yeah. unchecked capitalism, maybe. Yeah, maybe. that's yeah, that's not going to get that's not going to get optioned. No, <laughs> you need a Marvel character in your in your book. But I think maybe one of the chicas could be a Marvel character in my mind. Yeah, I one of the challenges, and this is something that we talked about in an episode I did with Mitchell Schwartzer about his book, Hellatown, about the history of development and disruption in Oakland. One of the things that we talked about was the challenges of cities in California that urbanize so fast, you know, California was one of the most quickly urbanizing places in the world. And so you had the development of these cities that kind of happened according to need or in the moment or rapidly in such a way that, you know, it's not as maybe organized as it could be. So that's kind of one argument that's often propped up for why you need to go in and kind of redevelop. But then, you know, you have the kind of perspective, the Jane Jacobs perspective of, you know, cities develop in the way that people for people's needs and natural to the demands of what they need from their communities. So how would you how would you think your book kind of situates itself in that discussion? I don't know if I, I really fall on either side of that discussion. I think there's arguments in the book for both that are compelling. I think if you look at what the communities of Palo Verde, La Loma and Bishop were before they were destroyed 
you have a pretty good Jane Jacobs case. You have self-sustaining communities of people who found a way to make it work with, you know, gardens and with walkable neighborhoods and with people caring for each other, talking to each other on the street. They were, you know, it was almost to the point of like cliche. They had these accounts in newspapers of like guitars strumming at night and the moon shining and yeah. all that, all that crap. And like some of it might be real, you know, that there is, there was some of that. There was an immense love and respect for people. People were happy there. I think genuinely, even as people were struggling and even as the city didn't offer them services that they were offering to other places. So I think those communities and the people who are from there and who descended from those families, many would make a strong case that why would you mess something like that up? People are happy, you know, people are making it work. If anything, you need to foster that and give them those services. Well, I, I do want to spend a little time talking about baseball because baseball is, I grew up a Dodgers fan and, you know, it's kind of in my nature to want to end with something a little bit more light in some capacity, but while retaining some of the broader lessons of the book, if Robert Moses wasn't as stubborn as he was, would we have an LA Dodgers? No, I don't think we would. Okay. Can you, can you explain why? Sure. So the origin of the Dodgers move out West comes down to a sort of battle of wills between Robert Moses, who was the sort of, you know, boss of the world of New York and Walter O'Malley, the owner of the team. And O'Malley wanted a new stadium for the Dodgers in Brooklyn. He wanted it to be privately owned and have parking lots. Those are the basics of it. And he wanted to put it near where the Nets play now, uh, where Barclays Center is in Brooklyn. And Robert Moses, who was in charge of these things, essentially wanted him to move the Dodgers to Queens, to a city-owned stadium. Um, and that conflict basically became this like sort of staring match, staring contest, and neither one of them blinked. I think there's a pretty good case to be made that O'Malley never really wanted to move, actually. Gerald Poder, who wrote a book about these events called City of Dreams, makes it really well that he thought he was sort of bluffing. And he, you know, he's born and raised in New York, from New York, just like his dad was a Tammany Hall politician. Like they, they, he did not anticipate taking the Dodgers to LA, but his desire to have the stadium he wanted and his desire to not get beat by Robert Moses and, you know, move to a publicly owned stadium in Queens sort of overrode those connections and sent him to LA. Next one, this is a tough one. Should the Baseball Hall of Fame Museum be in Cooperstown? Yeah. Okay, so should. We, should, we, should, we should retain the mythology that you described in the book in, term, in terms of the origins of baseball. I mean, the mythology now is part of the history, right? You can't, yeah. you can't unmythologize a myth, right? Like, so <laughs> in the book, I talk about how, about the myth of Abner Doubleday and Abner Doubleday was the supposed founder of baseball as a Civil War hero and interesting, strange man who was from Cooperstown, New York. And because of this myth, and this myth was propagated by a guy named Albert Spaulding, who started the Spaulding Sporting Good Company in order to sort of like sell baseball as the all-American game. The, the Doubleday myth is now like as real as, you know, anything else, as Babe calling a shot. It's like, it's cemented into, into the sports history. And I think acknowledging the fact that it's a myth is important, but I also think moving the Hall of Fame 
where, where are you going to move it to? You know, it's, I don't think we have a better place for it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's, and that's probably the challenge of writing about baseball in some ways, right? Is the, is the kind of the blending of myth and history and how those almost are, you can't tear them apart, but then that also makes it challenging if you're trying to get to the source and really understand the way things actually happened. And so I, in some ways, I think that's what you're trying to do with this book uh, is kind of is get in the middle of the myth and the legend, whether it's the people living in La Loma, whether it's, you know, these stories of Santa Ana. Can you, can you, that was one of the most funny vignettes, the origins of, 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 of gum. Can you, can you talk about that for a second? That I, th- I thought that was such a funny kind of side story. And, and did you just include that because it was interesting and kind of tangentially related to baseball? Yeah, basically. I <laughs> So, I mean, a lot of the book happened, like it wasn't written on the page, but a lot of the book kind of came into my head when I lived in Mexico City and I was working there. And I spent a lot of time in this place that is, is a house in a random neighborhood in Mexico City that's an, a baseball history archive. And it's owned by this Mexican billionaire named Alfredo Harpalu, a cousin of Carlos Slim Palu. And Alfredo Harpalu is like, main like donor of baseball to Mexico. He owns multiple teams. He owns part of the Padres. He's and he has this house that he just stores a bunch of weird baseball history stuff in mm-hmm. and you can go. It's kind of amazing. And so I was when I was there, I discovered that myth about double days troops using Santa Ana's wooden leg as a baseball bat, which I talk I write about in the book. And it's this mythical version of the origin of baseball in Mexico. And it originated in some American guidebooks to Mexico in the early 1900s. And that sort of sent me down the Santa Ana tangent. And I was really thinking about baseball and mythology and sort of later in the book, you know, and the reason I included it is that a lot of the case that sort of LA politicians made and boosters made in, for baseball was that it was like this all-American thing and that LA is not going to truly be an all-American city until it has a major league baseball team. Not a minor league baseball team, but a major league team. And I thought that was so interesting, this idea that, you know, you can create an all-American city by importing a baseball team from another city. You can create an all-American sport by inventing a mythology around a Civil War veteran who, quote-unquote, founded it or created it in his backyard. And one of the ways that baseball was promoted was with bubblegum and cards and bubblegum packs as you know any baseball fan knows and i just thought it was also interesting that the guy partly responsible for the creation of bubblegum as an american phenomenon was a hated american figure general santa Ana, and that he was also involved in this other myth about the founding of baseball in mexico i don't know it just seemed like such like too juicy of a connection to pass up yeah absolutely Okay, a couple more baseball questions before we wrap up. Can you describe why Dodger Stadium is beautiful? Sure. I mean, just look at it, right? Like it's it's a it's a visually beautiful building. If you're sitting inside of it, the sight lines are great. The sort of backdrop to to the outfield, the palm trees and the wavy roof and left and right field, it has just a really like kind of magical atmosphere to it that's very hard to describe, but easy to feel. God, I think I go on at length in the book about its beauty. It's re- The colors are, are just right. Considering its origin, it's, you know, just a spectacularly good-looking 
stadium. And part of that is because it was built to be a baseball stadium specifically and not to be anything else. I think form follows function a little bit. And because Dodger Stadium was built by Walter O'Malley to be really at the time, like the best baseball stadium ever with very specific purpose behind that, it ended up being the best baseball stadium ever. Yeah. I just finished reading this book by a, a Nordic project manager. It's called How Big Things Get Done. And it's it's almost stupefying what he was able to achieve with Dodger Stadium, given all the challenges with construction. But that's a whole different podcast. So I, I do think that the best time to watch a Dodger game in Dodger Stadium is probably, you know, depending on the time of year, some around sunset. I mean, it's really designed for those late afternoon, early evening games when you're sitting there and you describe it in the book or what Vin Scully would say with pink, pink clouds or what pink bubble gum. candy skies. Cotton candy. There you go. Yeah. Like that is, that is the time to, you know, and I day games, you know, and my, my sunburns on my thighs will attest to day games are much less enjoyable. <laughs> so let's talk about the implications for fans of the Dodgers. You know, there's, the whole basin's full of them. If they read your book, what what would you hope that they would take away and how would that change how they look at their love for the Dodgers and Dodger Stadium? So the, the way I think about this is that if you really love something, you should be willing to criticize it and willing to find things that could be better about it. The Dodger organization with its current ownership group does not acknowledge or talk about this. And I think that's wrong. I think that's a problem. I'd also say that the city of LA and the county of LA don't either. And that's equally, if not more wrong or a problem. The The thing I would want anybody who reads the book to feel is empathy, I think, at the end and to sort of feel for these characters and understand how it happened and come away with an appreciation for the power of these events. And for the power of these people who I write about, I think that like Abraham Arechiga, Frank Wilkinson, Walter O'Malley are pretty remarkable. And Willie Davis, whoever else, you know, that the, the people I wrote about in this book are worth thinking about. But in terms of fandom now, I, I don't think you should stop watching the Dodgers or stop going to Dodger games. I think you should be willing to hold the team accountable. I think a Dodger fan is very quick to be pissed off that they don't have any pitching going into the playoffs right now. I think you should be equally, if not more quick to be pissed off that the team benefited from a bunch of really messed up events and has never made amends for it. I, I don't think that's too much to ask of fans. Yeah. Well, and one thing that Dodgers fans can use from your book and they can let uh, Giants fans know about is if the Dodgers didn't come West, there would be no Giants. The existence of the Dodgers explains the existence of the Giants in San Francisco, but that's a whole different subject. Again, it's true though. Uh, it is definitely true. All right. Last question on the book before we get to book recommendations. Why did you choose to end with Willie Davis and what does he represent for you? So Willie Davis was a Dodger center fielder, kind of the first center fielder in LA Dodger history, really, especially like kind of once they got to Dodger Stadium. And I wanted to show, partly he's a product of public housing in LA. And I wanted to show the, and he lived in the same public housing project as the Wilkinson family for a brief point. I thought it was important to show that there was a, you know, potentially good things that could come out of these public housing projects and that it wasn't, you know, just a theoretical idea. Was, these were real places, real people came from there. 
I earlier in the book write about Duke Snyder quite a bit. And Duke Snyder was from Compton, California, back when it was a segregated city. And he was the person who preceded Willie Davis in center field. So I thought that the sort of like passing of the guard in center field for the Dodgers between a white guy who grew up in a segregated neighborhood in LA and a black guy who grew up in a public housing project sort of represented, I guess, change in the city and unfulfilled potential in the city to me. Yeah. Well, I could ask you a bunch more questions about this book because there's so many interesting plot lines, but we're going to stop there and get to book recommendations. What are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners that are either about the Dodgers, about Los Angeles, about baseball that have been important to you that uh, you think people should read? Sure. About Los Angeles, my like friend, writing teacher and mentor, Lou Matthews, a novelist and short story writer, and his kind of late 90s novel about street racing in LA in the 50s called LA Breakdown just got re-released. And I would highly recommend LA Breakdown by Lou Matthews. It's just a great book about LA culture and it's a great story, really tight writing. That's the first one that comes to mind. I haven't read it yet and it's not related at all, but I'm really excited about the Emily Wilson Iliad translation that just came out. Oh, um, I am so excited too. I loved her Odyssey translation and I, I yeah, I've definitely pre-ordered it. I don't know when it's going to be arriving, but I think it's soon, right? I think, yeah, very soon. I think I'm going to go buy it today. That's the book that I'm excited to read right now. Let me think. What In about baseball? Of, what, are, what, are, what, are, what are one or two good baseball books? All know? right. My favorite baseball book is called Sadaharu O, A Zen Way of Baseball. And it's a autobiography by Sadaharu O in English. And I can't remember the guy who wrote it with him, but it was an old time sports writer, sort of sort of not somebody famous. And it's all about his sort of process of becoming the greatest hitter in Japanese baseball history and reinventing his swing with his hitting coach and life and sort of like finding purpose and process. And it's just, it's a gem and it's out of print, but if you can find it at a used bookstore somewhere and it's nothing like stealing home, I wouldn't want to give people the idea that it is, but I, I'd say that's the the book I'd, I'd always give to people as a baseball book. Got it. All right. How do the Dodgers stand right now in terms of the playoff race and the run to the pennant? And what are you working on next? Sure. So the Dodgers are in first place and they're about to go into the playoffs. They're really good at hitting. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I'm optimistic about their chances in the playoffs. They have a bunch of rookie pitchers who can throw like hundred miles an hour. And I think sometimes in the playoffs, that's really what you need. It's just dudes who can throw heat. Their pitching staff is somewhat decimated, but the fact that they don't really have expectations and that they have all these guys who are just throwing gas and don't seem to care about anything makes me think maybe they're going to do it. Yeah. And then what are you working on next? Well, my day job is I'm the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Seattle Met. I live in Tacoma, Washington now, and so we cover Seattle and the, the surrounding region. And then book-wise, I'm working on a book about labor and logging history in the Northwest, and I won't get too much more into it than that. Okay, wonderful. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I really enjoyed your book and encourage people to pick it up. You know, if you have any relationship with Los Angeles, I feel like it's a book that will not only help you understand an origin of potentially your favorite baseball team, because I don't really talk about the Angels. You know, it's just this whole other subject. They always play terrible music at the stadium. I just I just don't enjoy it. I know I'm probably offending a bunch of people right now, but I'm just being honest. Um, but if you want to understand history of that basin, 
history of sports in the area, I think this is a great place to start. So I appreciate that you wrote it and uh, for coming on to talk with us. Thank you for having me and the great questions. This is really fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.